Thanks for joining us for this session here. Uh, I'm sure many of you have heard me already say it, but uh, if you would, please silence your mobile devices out of respect for those around you as well as our speaker today. And if you haven't yet, there's still a day and a half left for you to download the Pain Week app so we can solicit all the good feedback on this week's event as well as all the individual sessions. So with that said, this is course number PMH or PHM02. There's an added line in there, not your mama's opioid conversion calculations. And our distinguished speaker today is Dr. Lynn McPherson. Um, if you missed her Jeopardy session earlier in the week, then you have to sign up next year and watch it again because it's brilliant. But um, Dr. Lynn McPherson is a professor and executive director in advanced postgraduate education in palliative care. And she's also the program director of the online Master of Science in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. Pharmacy Practice and Science in Stevensville. So please help me welcome Dr. McPherson. Thank you. One last piece. She will be doing a book signing after this, uh, after this session out here in the hallway or maybe up in the commons. So. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for getting up at the crack of dawn to come talk about drug math. Woohoo! I thought only pharmacists would show up. This is pretty awesome. I don't have anything to disclose. All right, so we're going to talk about... Why do we do opioid conversion calculations, which I think is such a critically important skill. Everybody here needs to really know how to do this well. Um, and talk about some recent data that it really, you know what, um, my book has shaken things up already. Already I'm getting uh, weird looks like, what? What are you doing with this chart, woman? Because we've had better data over the past three to five years that have really guided recrafting that equianalgesic table. So you're going to be the first to hear about it. And then given a simulated patient, we're going to switch between routes and dosage formulations of the same opioid, and then we're going to practice switching from one opioid to a different opioid. All right, so why would we want to switch somebody? It could be for a lot of reasons. Lack of therapeutic response, or they're having a side effect on their original opioid regimen, a change in the patient's status. Maybe they had surgery, but now they want to go home on oral. Maybe they were at home on oral, and they get acutely ill, and they have to come in, and you want to put them on IV. Maybe it's a hospice patient who can't swallow tablets or capsules anymore. So lots of different reasons. Other considerations is um, opioid or formulation availability. And this has really been a challenge the last year or so, would you not say? How many of you have been affected by the IV shortage of fentanyl and hydromorphone and even morphine? Let me tell you, we have, especially on the West Coast, it seems like, um, my hospice has an office in California, and boy, we've had to get pretty darn creative. What's scary is now I'm seeing people say, let's just give Demerol by PCA. Why don't we just shoot them? Just shoot the patient. I mean, that's just as good, right? It's quicker, it's cheaper. <sighs> formulary issues. So if you work inpatient in palliative care and you send them home to me on Oxycontin or one of those fancy dancy abuse deterrent things, we're going to be switching them off. Uh, and then patient and family health beliefs. Oh, you can't put my mother on methadone. That's only for druggies. What's wrong with you? Oh, dude, methadone is awesome. All right, so some people call this opioid rotation, some call it opioid substitution, some call it switching. I don't really care what you call it. You're going to be doing a calculation, so you're going to be whipping out a calculator. Now, I will share with you my obscene bias against using an opioid conversion app. I absolutely will. So um, you heard that I have a, do, we do a master's program in palliative care. And in the advanced pain course, the very first week, their assignment, one of their assignments, is to go find three opioid conversion apps online. And I wrote three quick little cases and said, what answers do you get? And the answers were so hugely disparate. And I said, what do you think about this? I wasn't trying to color their opinion. But they were like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe how disparate they are. My, my problem with apps is people tend to turn their brain off. I had a pharmacy student in rotation with me years ago, 
And a nurse said, hey, could you convert this patient from this to this? So I nudged him and I said, hey, this is great. You do it. This is great for you to do. So he said, oh, I've got an app for that. I said, of course you do. So he whips out his phone. He didn't do much without an app. Let's just leave it there. And he's doing away to town on the app. And he said, wow. I said, what? Wow. He said, it came out to like 5,000 milligrams of morphine a day. I said, well, what do you think of that? He said, well, we're going to have to order more morphine. <laughs> we have much bigger issues here, my friend. <laughs> Goofball. All right, so important terms to know as we're doing these calculations. You can use an app to check yourself, but if it's wrong and there's a 50-50 chance it'll be way different than what you calculate, then you're not going to want to know what to do. So I would just stay away from the apps. Phone a friend, for God's sake. Do something else. Opioid responsiveness is how much analgesia you get as the dose is titrated to that therapeutic endpoint. Potency is how much bang do you get for your buck. I always tell the story about my, my daughter's here with me. She remembers we were on vacation a long time ago, and I had had an umbilical hernia that we, were, we coexisted peacefully for years and years until we landed at the airport. And this is before the airline said no more than 50 pounds in a suitcase. And my little dumpling suitcase weighed about 90 pounds. So my husband went to get the rental car, and she said, hey, there's my suitcase. Why don't you grab it? So I did like a good mother. Well, apparently, I herniated that sucker. So like two days into the vacation, I told my husband, I think I'm going to die in this timeshare in West Palm Beach during a freaking hurricane. I was like, what? What else could happen? So off we go to the hospital, which was like a 15-bed hospital. It was like, well, this is adorable. And then the... the so the, the ER doctor said, oh, you're in big trouble here. You need emergency surgery. So he said, but you look really uncomfortable. How about something for the pain? I was like, no, that's all right. My husband was like, are you crazy? You teach this stuff for a living. So I said, all right, I'll take something for the pain. So here comes the nurse. She's about 12 years old. She says, look, he ordered a big dose, like two milligrams of dilated. So I'm going to give it to you really slow. I was like, come on, hit me. I'm a big girl. So she, she says, no, I'm going to do it slow. So she gives like a quarter of it. Oh, my God. One arm brain circulation. She could have cut off my freaking head. It was amazing I loved it it was awesome the pain went to like minus three it was I could see why people abuse it so then four hours later the surgeon finally comes in who shares with me by the way I don't have malpractice because I can't afford it I said of course so uh, he says I'm going to give you something else for the pain and a half an hour later I'm thinking why don't I feel as good I asked the nurse I said what did you just give me she said two milligrams of IV morphine I was like ah one-fourth the potency no wonder I feel one-fourth as good and then the anesthesiologist came in who literally looked like he was 12. And I said, give me your cell phone and get your mother on the line. I want to make sure you really did go to medical school. And I'm going to give you a quiz about anesthetic agents and fat people. So he passed the quiz. So I live to tell about it, obviously. But that's my story on equipotent dosing or the sad lack thereof. All right, bioavailability. If you give someone oral methadone, um, only about 70% of that will be absorbed relative to the same dose given parenterally. So when we look at oral versus rectal, for most drugs, it's, it's the same. For some, it's less, depending on, interestingly, how high up you shove the rectal suppository. Uh, so it all depends. But if you look at oral morphine, for example, not such hot oral bioavailability. It's about 30 to 40%, um, so, but a very wide range. Hydromorphone, this is important. It's about 50%. It's about 50%. And now this has been borne out in chronic dose studies by Dr. Reddy from MD Anderson. As far as I'm concerned, Dr. Reddy hung the freaking moon. Oxycodone, pretty high. Oxymorphone, it's abysmal. 
So that's what goes into this chart. So what is different from this chart than every other chart you've ever seen in your whole life? So if you've got one of my awesome little cards, that's what's on here. You'll see I did make parenteral morphine 10 equal to 25 oral instead of 30, which I know you're all sucking in saying, what? But that's the only way I could make the hydromorphone work. So if you go down here, remember the old charts? All the charts out there, the apps say one and a half of IV hydromorphone is seven and a half of oral. That's not true because people are going from one and a half of hydromorphone to 30 of oral morphine, which is a 20 to 1 conversion, and that is wrong. Dr. Reddy has shown one milligram of IV morphine is about 10 or 11 milligrams of oral morphine. So this chart is far more evidence-based than anything out there right now. So my friend Richard Wheeler said, I'm so excited. Now all the states are going to have to change their little cards for their MDD calculation. I was like, well, I wish them well. But anyway, um, this, this is the latest, greatest data out there. So, I, I, but you know, and my students get so excited saying, oh my God, drug math, this is awesome. There's one right answer. Well, not so much. It's still a fair degree of subjectivity. And I say in the book that, you know, using this kind of data, even though this is the most awesome data going, is like buying a ticket to the ballpark. So I work in Baltimore. We have Camden Yards with 40,000 seats. But all this means is it still doesn't tell you which of the 40,000 seats is your seat. Then you have to really use your assessment data to figure out the exact dose for your patient. So this is really important. All right, so the problem with those charts, including my awesome chart, is the source of the data. So we are getting better. I mean, when I wrote the second edition of the book, I thought, has the time come that instead of a number in this chart, I should have a range? Like 10 milligrams of parenteral morphine is anywhere from 25 to 30 of oral, which really is probably more correct. But I thought, no, people will lose their mind if I put ranges in it. Uh, but still, it's the sources of the data. Some of this data still is from acute single-dose crossover trials. But increasingly, we have multi-dose steady-state trial data, which I really called out in the second edition because that's so important. And none of these charts include or consider patient-specific variables. Are you young? Are you old? Are you skinny? Are you fluffy? How's your organ function? None of them consider that. And is it bi-directional? If 20 of this is 30 of this, is 30 of this 20 of this? Not necessarily. With morphine and hydromorphone, depends which way you're going. So in this chart, we split the difference and kind of take the average there. But still, it's just your ticket to the ballpark. This is the five-step process I always advocate when you're doing a conversion calculation. Number one, assess the pain again. This is so important. So when a nurse calls me to do a conversion, Dr. Smith told me to call you to get the conversion calculation. I'll say, tell me about the pain. And often they'll say, what do you mean? I say, where is it? Can I buy a vowel? Where is the pain? <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. Let me go ask the patient. Seriously, dude, you called another provider and you don't even know where the boo-boo is? This is shameful. So know about the pain because this is important, particularly the severity. When we go to step four, to individualize what you calculate based on your patient. Were they in pain? Were they not in pain at the time we made the switch? Add up the total daily dose, long-acting and short-acting. If you don't have a good feel for the average amount of short-acting they've been getting for the past few days, don't include it in your calculation. Then decide which drug you're going to switch to, and then you use your snappy little opioid conversion chart, and it's a simple ratio. And this is, and I, the reason I think my book went like insanely viral is people are terrified of drug math. And particularly this step, it's just a ratio. If this freaks you out, we can call the third grader and they'll do it for you. We're not integrating calculus equations here. It's a simple ratio. You can do it in your head, although I don't advocate doing that. Then you get, come up with the magic number and you have to ask yourself, 
okay, am I switching routes of administration? Am I switching from one molecule to a different one? Were they in pain? How quickly do I need to get the job done? What kind of a monitored environment is the patient in? And the most important step is to do your follow-up monitoring. Very, very, very important. All right, are you ready to go to work now? Now I can take a break. I'm putting you to work. So here we have HW, an 84-year-old man in a long-term care facility with general debility on a Percocet, 5, 3, 25, six tabs a day. Pain control is great, but he can't swallow tablets anymore. And his physician has asked you to convert him to an oral solution of Oxy 5 per 5. Now, you don't even have to take off your socks to calculate this one, do you? You can do this one in your head. So we're going to do our steps. We, we're going to assess his pain. It's opiate responsive pain. He's doing great. By the way, these cases are not about the therapeutics, so don't go jumping me about, I would have done gabapentin. This is all about the drug math, okay? Just hang with me, people. <laughs> Six tablets of five of oxycodone, it's 30 a day. Now, you will notice I have ignored the contribution of the acetaminophen. I am not a fan of combination analgesics. So if you really desperately want to use acetaminophen, God bless you, you can use it separately, but don't combine it because you can titrate them separately. So we're switching to the five per five. So the dose is five, so the volume is five. We're staying with the same drug, oxycodone is oxycodone. So the only thing you really had to consider is what's the bioavailability of the oxycodone oral solution relative to the bioavailability of the oral tablet, and it's about the same. So you're home free. And then, of course, you're going to monitor the patient. So after each of the cases we do, I have a slide that says the to-go points. Ignore the contribution of the acetaminophen. You're welcome to use it separately after you do the switch. You're going from an oral oxycodone tablet to the oral solution. Uh, the only thing you have to consider is the bioavailability. It's the same, so it's a one-to-one -one conversion. Any questions on that? I thought I'd get you feeling real confident about things before I kick it up a notch. Like, I totally got this. Okay. 62-year-old man with multiple myeloma and diffuse bony mets admitted to hospice. And I know you're thinking, where's the steroid? Okay, fine. He's on a steroid. Current analgesic regimen is extended release morphine, 30Q12, plus oral morphine solution, 10, PRN, taking six a day, plus we added the dexamethasone. Admitted inpatient to switch to IV morphine due to continued pain. All right, so we've assessed his pain. We're on the right regimen. So his total daily dose is 30Q12 is 60, and six of the 10-milligram doses is another 60, so he's getting 120 a day. And I know you're sitting there thinking, saying, boy, I really wish you hadn't made that 30 into a 25 because I can take 120 and divide by 30 and boom, divide by 3, and I'm a home free. So it should be kind of sort of around 40 milligrams. But let's go through it. Humor me. So if you do the math, it works out to 48 milligrams of IV morphine a day. So this top part here is this is the equation I always use. I always put my unknown in the numerator um, in honor of my friend Linda, who I did my pre-pharmacy while she was doing her pre-medical algebra course in college back 100 years ago. And if I had a nickel for every time she said, how do I get X out of the bottom? Yes, this woman's a doctor and she is among us. Um, I would be a wealthy woman right now. But anyway, everything on the left side of the equation is real-time data, what I'm solving for and what they're currently on. Everything on the right side comes from the equianalgesic chart. And you will see the same drug by the same route in the numerator on both sides, and then the same drug by the same route in the denominator on both sides. So this checks that your equation is correct. You cross multiply, you solve for x. Now, this is now step four. So step three gives us 48 milligrams of IV morphine. What are we going to do with this now? Is it going to be an infusion? Is it going to be a Q4-hour dose? So it's going to be a Q4-hour 
power. Now, a lot of guidelines would say, even though you're just switching routes of administration, you should cut back. Okay, if he was like super duper comfortable and as a matter of fact a little sleepy, maybe I'd cut back a smidge, especially to round down to a more convenient dosage formulation. But he's being admitted for screaming pain out of control. We believe it's morphine-responsive pain. He's just not getting enough drug, and now he can't take it by the oral route, and we want to be a little quicker in getting to the therapeutical. So I would bump this up. And the nice thing about doing morphine 10Q4 in this case is if I give him 10 milligrams IV now and it, and it snows him, he's not going to kill him. He's opioid tolerant. He'll wake up from a really awesome nap, and then I'll cut it back for the next dose. Everybody good with this? So the to-go points here are you're going from morphine to morphine, but you are converting routes. So the IV morphine dose is about a third. So we use that 10 to 25 conversion. Um, and make sure you always work in terms of the total daily dose. And use your common sense. Does that sound right? So if it's about a third and he was on almost 150 or so, what's a third of that? It's about 50. It calculated to 48. That works for me. So please use the common sense approach too. When you're converting from one opioid to a different opioid, you usually do need to reduce the dose. So I would reduce substantially if the patient was not in pain, and I would reduce maybe just a smidge if they were in pain. Uh, but he, we're using the same drug, and he is in pain, so I would increase it. All right. Okay, anybody, any questions? Everybody having a wonderful time so far? Awesome. We have another talk in here, like smack the minute that we finish, so... We can't drag our feet. Case three, a 92-year-old woman with breast cancer currently getting MS cotton, 60Q12, plus MSIR 20Q4, taking three doses a day. She's been on this for two weeks, and her pain control is awesome, but she has developed visual hallucinations, which she finds quite frightening. All right, she has significant renal impairment with a creatinine of two. So what's going on here? It's the accumulation of the morphine metabolite, right? The M3-glucuronide that's causing this. So morphine is metabolized to M3 and M6-glucuronide. The M6 is a supraspinal analgesic, which is awesome, but the M3 is quite toxic. So her doc wants to switch it to long-acting oral oxycodone. So how do we do this? So we've assessed her pain. Everything's awesome. We're going to calculate her total daily dose. We set up our equation. Uh, so she was getting a total of 180 milligrams of oral morphine a day. We consult our snappy little chart, 20 milligrams of oral oxycodone, which goes in the numerator because we're solving for that, is equal to about 25 of oral morphine. So you're looking at that and you're thinking, well, the new answer has got to be 20% less than 180. So whatever I calculate should be a little bit less than 180. And look at that, by golly, it came out to 144. What's the next step, do you think? How would we customize this? We could run with this number, we could increase it, or we could decrease it. Everybody's got to vote. Who thinks we should go with 144 milligrams of oral oxycodone? Nobody wants to do that. What's well, a weird number? I tell my pharmacy students, if you come up with a calculation of something stupid like MS content 17.4 Q12, even if your math is impeccable, I will take off all the points because I'm saving you from the embarrassment of saying that to a prescriber because they're going to think you're the village idiot. You can't do 17.4 of MS cotton, even if you get at your whittling knife. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> Who thinks that we should increase it a little bit? Okay, I got a one vote for increasing a little bit. How about decreasing it? Look, you're all so smart. I'm so proud. All right, so we solve for X. Her pain's controlled, but she had a side effect. That's why we're switching. So we should reduce somewhere between 25 and 50%. That's the, I, I'm really fond of the one-third rule. Uh, so generally, I do about a third. But again, my eye is on what tablet strengths does OxyContin come in? Well, luckily now, we have 714 different strengths of OxyContin. So it's not going to be hard to make the right dose. So a 25 to 50% reduction would bring us down to about 72 to 108 so then I decide, am, am I going to do 
long acting? Am I going to do short acting? Well, the physician asked for the long acting. I do like to use short acting for a day or two if I can help it when doing a switch, just to make sure that I did not shoot wrong. I don't want anybody to suffer. So my rule of thumb that I roll with is I'm conservative with the standing scheduled dose, and I'm insanely generous with breakthrough. So the doc did ask for long acting, so I'm going to go to the lower end. I'm going to do 30Q12. 40Q12 would not be wrong. You could certainly do that. And then the OxyR, I'm going to do 10Q2PRN. Or you could even do 20Q2PRN. So the to-go points here are we are switching from one opioid to a different opioid. You set up your ratio, calculate the total daily dose. If the patient's pain was well controlled, I would reduce by about a third, up to 50%. If they were in pain at the time of the switch, you could go with closer to that number you calculated, maybe round down a little bit maybe. So maybe go from the 144 down to maybe the 120 if she was in screaming pain. Uh, but I really, really would rather use the short acting in that case. Uh, and make sure you can give the dose that you calculate with either a tablet or capsule long-acting or solution. So again, uh, this, is, this concept, what we just talked about, is confusing for my students, so I try to summarize it here. If you're going from one formulation or route of administration to a different one of the same opioid, all you have to consider is the bioavailability, and you would probably increase it if the patient's in pain. If you're switching from one molecule to a different molecule, you're not going to have complete cross-tolerance. You know we, probably, we have at least three to five, probably up to 25 different mu receptors, and the opioids bind a little bit differently to those various mu receptors. And there's pharmacogenetics at play here, too. So use the ratio from the chart, but if the pain's controlled, I would reduce by 25 to 50% and maybe reduce a little bit less if they are having pain. So this is kind of the, the summary slide there. Everybody good still? Okay. Mrs. Clater is a 62-year-old woman with pancreatic cancer. Her pain is well-controlled, but she's unable to swallow the MS cotton tablets of 200Q12 or even the oral morphine solution 40Q3, which she uses about once a day. Her doc wants to switch it to a parenteral sub-Q infusion. Now, who would count her and say, maybe you'd have to be about my age, which, of course, is still 39 because my daughter is now past my 29, so I can't be 29 anymore, but would say, you know, we can insert an MS cotton 200 rectally. Anybody want to go that route? Yeah, please don't do that. That's not very pharmaceutically elegant, even though we do have really old data showing you could insert an MS cotton tablet rectally. All right, so what are your thoughts here? So we're going to do our math. So it's going to be about a third, so, or three times. So we put the sub-Q morphine over the 440 oral, um, 10 over 25. It works out to 175 milligrams of sub-Q morphine a day. When you look at these little charts like this, how do sub-Q IM and IV compare in your mind when you're looking at an equianalgesic chart? What do you think? Do you, do you account for a difference between those three routes? Well, an IM opioid is just not smart, right? We should get rid of that altogether. So sub-Q and IV, how do they compare in your mind? Do you use the same equianalgesic ratio? I do. I use the same. It's close enough for government work. When you consider the error that's already built into the chart, when you compare IV and sub-Q, you know what? I'm good with that. All right, so it comes out to 176. Um, so we divide by 24 hours, it comes out to 7.3. So I would round down to the closest whole number, so I would go down to 7. Now, what are you going to do for a bolus dose? This is a continuous infusion. I generally do anywhere from 50 to maybe even 150% of the hourly infusion. So you could do 3.5 to 7 generally with a sub-Q infusion. I offer the bolus every 30 minutes. With an IV continuous infusion, I do the bolus generally about every 15 minutes. So remember, my students really struggle hard 
I mean, they're, we teach pain in the spring of their very first year of pharmacy school. So they're fresh off the boat. I mean, they really, they got nothing. So it's, it's, this is a lot to kind of take in. They really struggle with the difference between like post-op PCA dosing, where the entire opiate comes from the bolus feature, versus a continuous infusion, where we're dealing with a patient with a serious illness, where we're giving them the vast majority of their opioid by the continuous infusion. And the bolus is just that, to give them a little bit of a bump here. When should the infusion start relative to the last dose of MS Contin? What do you think? Should we, start, should we take the, have them swallow the last tablet and then start the infusion at the same time? Should we start the infusion at some period of time before we uh, take the last dose of MS Contin? Or should we wait some time? I would wait a little bit. Unless they're on fire, I would wait a little bit because it's still going to be working. So the to-go points here, you're switching from oral morphine to, well, here we did sub-Q, actually. You've been asked to calculate a continuous infusion. No need to dose reduce because of the lack of cost tolerance. No need to change the dose because there was no mention of um, uncontrolled pain. So you calculate the infusion rate and the bolus dose. A very, very important point, which really doesn't have anything to do with the calculation, is you do not adjust that infusion rate unless it's to reduce it or hold it for at least 12 to 24 hours. 24 would be my preference because it's going to take you that long to get to steady state. The bolus you can change every two hours if you need to. All right, here we have MJ, a 68-year-old man admitted for total hip replacement. Started on a PCA pump at hydromorphone, 0.2 IVQ, 10 minutes. From hours 49 to 60, he used a total of 7.2 milligrams of IV hydromorphone. And the prescriber has asked us to convert to short and long-acting morphine at 50% of the IV requirements. Boy, there's a lot going on in this question, isn't it? Wow, we may need to phone a friend for this one. So when somebody is post-op and we're looking at sending them home on something, people should be feeling better literally every 12-hour period, right? So that's why it's important to look at his last 12 hours, not the last 24 hours, because I hope he's doing better. And the, the whoever asked us to do this calculation is anticipating they're going to continue to be getting better every 12-hour period. So we look at 7.2 milligrams over 12 hours, which if we just work with that number, that's equivalent to 14.4 milligrams of IV hydromorphone over 24 hours. So our first, we're going to switch to oral hydromorphone. So as you can see here, 2 milligrams of IV hydromorphone is about 25 oral morphine based on Dr. Reddy's work from MD Anderson. We, we, we crunch through the numbers and experts out to 180 milligrams of oral dilaudid. That's a lot of dilaudid, don't you think? So the, the prescriber said, could you reduce it by 50%? I'm morphine rather still. Uh, that comes out to 90. So um, we are going to do this every four hours. So the 90 milligrams a day of oral morphine divided by six is 15. So we could do the MSIR 15 milligrams Q4 around the clock. Now, if they asked us to do a long acting, which would not be my preference, um, I believe Avenza actually now is off the market, or we could do a Cadian twice a day, or even once a day if you feel lucky, or the Oromorph, or, or one other long acting oral morphine. So the to-go points here, we're going from IV to oral opioids. This is an acute pain situation, should be getting better every day. I would rather do short-acting, particularly for post-op pain. Um, I, I really would not like to use a long-acting opiate if I could help it, unless the pain is really expected to last a good long while. But that would not, And even in that case, like I, I just did another talk where um, it was post-thoracotomy pain, and the prescriber wanted to use OxyContin, and, and it came out to calculate to like 120 a day, but I said what I probably would do is give them the 10-milligram OxyContin tablet and say, take three Q12 day one, take 2 Q12, day 2, day 1 Q12, day 3, and boom, you're done with the long acting. Make it a very, very quick taper. But if I had my choice, I would always use the short acting. 
Alrighty, Mr. Crippen is a 58-year-old man admitted to an inpatient hospice facility for pain out of control. Several days after admission, his pain is now well controlled on a PCA IV morphine infusion at one and a half milligrams an hour plus 0.5 for breakthrough. On average, he uses eight doses of breakthrough in a day. His physician would like to convert him to an oral opiate for discharge. What do you recommend? How about oral morphine? How about oral oxycodone? So again, this is a patient who is at end of life. So he's getting one and a half an hour times 24 hours is 36 plus eight of the half milligram bolus is another four. So his total daily dose of IV morphine is 40. So if we set up our equation where 10 of IV is 25 oral, and you can actually do this in your head, it'd be two and a half times. So two and a half times, that's going to be 100 milligrams. So we're going from morphine to morphine. So it's the same molecule. All we had to worry about was the bioavailability. So you could go with like an MS Cotton 45 Q12 if you wanted. And then generally the way I dose the breakthrough dose is 10 to 15%, maybe even 20% of the total daily dose as your breakthrough. Um, for a hospice patient, we generally do Q2. Sometimes we'll even do Q hour, although that is kind of dose stacking a little bit. Uh, for somebody who's ambulatory, when we're calculating breakthrough, if you even give breakthrough, uh, certainly no sooner than the Q4 hour dosing interval. But here we're going to go with Q2. Now, what if we're going to switch to the oxycodone? You set up your equation. X milligrams of oral oxycodone over 40 IV morphine. Uh, 20 oral over 10 um, IV or sub-Q. It works out to 80 milligrams of oral oxycodone. And here we are switching drugs. So I want to cut back by 25 to 50% to 40 or 60 of oxycodone a day. So the to-go points here, this is a patient with an advanced illness. They're on hospice. The pain is unlikely to be improving. As a matter of fact, it's probably going to get worse. We're going from parenteral to oral morphine. We need to account for the bioavailability. Otherwise, no need to adjust. Um, and when we went from parenteral morphine to oral oxycodone, we need to account for the bioavailability and reduce the dose because his pain was controlled and we don't have complete cross-tolerance. So it's a lot to remember in doing this. Everybody good with this? Anybody in a coma yet? Could you check your neighbors? Make sure everybody's still breathing. Awesome. All right, case seven. Mr. Johnson is a 62-year-old cancer pain patient, unable to swallow tablets or oral solution. He says, no way to rectal. I mean, wow, why wouldn't he want rectal? Everybody loves rectal. And he's not interested in a parenteral infusion. He's currently getting Oromorph SR, which is a generic long-acting morphine, 30Q8, with MSIR, 10Q3, PRN, taking about four doses a day. Goodness, what are we going to do with Mr. Johnson? His pain is well controlled. What do we need to consider before switching him to transdermal fentanyl? Somebody asked you, hey, could you switch this dude to transdermal fentanyl for me? What are the questions you would think of to ask first? Let me go back to this slide here. Raise your hand. What do you want to do? Does he have a fever? Why do you worry about that? Yeah, and do you think patients don't figure that out? In my primary care practice, I take care of a guy who's six foot eight. A concrete ceiling fell on him and obliterated his right hip. He has more hardware in him than the bionic man. So he came to me, he came back to me by default because it's a primary care practice. And he had been to every pain clinic in Maryland, I think Delaware, Pennsylvania, and they all gave up on him because they just could not fix it. And the surgeon said, look, I can stop this pain. I can take all the hardware out, but you probably won't be able to walk again. Wow, talk about a rock and a hard place. So he defaulted back to his PCP, so he defaulted to me for the pain. And I was like, Mr. Jones, not real name, I am going to fix this. I know you've been to every pain clinic in the world, but I'm going to fix it. So when he came to me, his pain on average was an eight. 
So a year later, one year later, I had tried every drug in the world that said to relieve pain. And I said, Mr. Jones, your pain is an eight today, you told me. I feel like a failure. I have not made any improvement. I had him on a little bit of methadone, and he was on transdermal fentanyl, like a big dose, like 150. So he looked me in the eye, such a dear man. He said, yeah, it's still an eight, but it's a better eight. <laughs> so borrowing from my social work friends, because that's what we do in hospice, I said, tell me more. He said, well... It's still an eight, but you know what? I don't want to kill myself anymore. He said, because you, you really have cared about me. And he said, you've really tried everything. And he said, I really have learned a lot from the coping skill part of it. So it's still an eight. It's still bad, but I don't want to kill myself anymore. It kind of makes you tear up, doesn't it? Anyway, um, that little rascal said to me one day, hey, doc, the third day, the patch, she's just not working anymore. And he insisted on putting the patches on his hip. You know how people, uh, cardiac patients put it like right over their heart? I said, you know, it doesn't actually get sucked right into your hip, right? He was not buying what I was selling. He was like, oh, it does. I was like, okay, all right, all right. If you really want to put it on your hip, I'm not going to stand in your way. So he said, but don't worry about it. That third day, I sit in my recliner and I just put a heating pad over it. I was like, dude, if I go to jail, my nickname will be Cupcake and I will be everybody's girlfriend. We are not doing this. No, 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 you naughty kitten. Let's switch to Q48 and promise me you won't do that anymore. So switching to Q48 did the trick. We know that's the case in about 20% of patients, which is crazy. How did the FDA come up with Q72? They looked at the time, they looked at the graph. Transdermal fentanyl lasts anywhere from one day to five. And the FDA said, you know what? I'm liking three. Let's go with it. <laughs> Big science here. All right, so fever, very important. Where are you planning on putting a heating pad over? What else do you want to know? Yeah, over there. Really, they're skinny mini. We have hospice patients who literally weigh like 60 pounds. I thought your bones weighed more than 60 pounds, but there you have it. Fentanyl is a very fat-soluble drug. It's just not going to work well. It's not reliable. Anything else? I hear somebody talking. Where are you? Integrity of the skin. Yeah, you want un unbroken skin. You don't want a really hairy area if you're going to clip it, if anything, but try to find a non-hairy area. Also, I would like to know how long he has been on Oromorph SR, and I want to make sure that he really has been getting at least that 60 milligrams a day of oral morphine a day for at least a week, which is the FDA's definition of tolerance. How do you do this conversion? Well, here's what I do. If you, I mean, I could show you fentanyl is 75 to 100 times more potent than morphine. And if you do out the math, this really does work out. Um, and then clinical trials have shown using this method works pretty darn well. So he's getting 130 a day. You take your total daily dose of oral morphine or oral morphine equivalent, and you divide it in two. So 130 divided by two is going to be 65. I don't ever play the game of using that goofy 12 mic patch. I don't do that. So I would round down to the 25, 50, 75, or 100. So here I would go down to transdermal fentanyl, 50 mics every three days. Timing, what do you think about the timing? When he I would say you can put the patch on at the same time he, if he can swallow one more oromorph 30 milligram tablet because it's going to take about 17 hours to get to pseudo steady state. So to go points, you cannot start transdermal fentanyl in an opioid naive patient. They have to be getting that 100 milligram, 60 milligrams of oral morphine equivalent a day for at least a week. If they're not on oral morphine, you convert to oral morphine and use that equivalent. And the 50% of oral morphine, that's mics per hour of the transdermal fentanyl patch, that works out pretty darn well. 
Let's talk just for a moment about breakthrough pain. This is so important. Breakthrough pain can be one of three different flavors. It can be spontaneous, meaning I'm just sitting here minding my beeswax, didn't do anything, nobody did anything to me, and boom, I got, this, I got the breakthrough pain. Um, so that's idiopathic occurring with no, no known stimulus. Much of idiopathic breakthrough pain is neuropathic. So if this is happening frequently, I would give strong consideration to adding a coanalgesic like a gabapentinoid or an antidepressant. Then we have incident pain, which is going to be second to some sort of a stimulus, which the patient may or may not be able to control. So volitional incident pain is every time I go to have a bowel movement, it causes the pain. Or it could be, I mean, no patient can say to you, you know what, I've thought about it, and I have decided I'm not going to have any more bladder spasms because it really hurts. I mean, you, you can't control that. You can't control coughing, which is really going to make your rib pain, pain skyrocket. And then there's end-of-dose failure, which some people argue, should you call it a breakthrough pain? But like my guy, my six-foot-eight guy on transdermofentanil, he was having end-of-dose failure. The patch did not last three days. So what I would try to do, for example, if they were on MS content or whatever, I would try to increase the dose and keep my Q12 before going to Q. But you do what you have to do. Um, this just goes over the characteristics of spontaneous um, pain versus incident volitional or non-volitional or end of dose and how you would manage it. So for spontaneous pain or non-volitional incident pain, you just treat it as quickly as you can. Or if it's idiopathic, maybe adding that coanalgesic for the neuropathic pain. For volitional incident pain, and we see a lot of this in end-of-life care, when the patient says, well, you know, I'm great until the nice nurse comes to do wound care, and holy moly, does my pain skyrocket. So what should we do 45 minutes before the nice nurse comes? Pre-medicate with their medication. Or before I go to see the doctor, riding in the car is just torture. Before you leave the house, take a dose of your immediate release. And we just talked about end-of-dose deterioration. I'm not going to read this to you, but this is our symptom analysis. And don't forget, you cannot even begin to diagnose this as breakthrough pain until you have controlled the persistent pain. So if you've controlled the normal, around-the-clock, pretty much always there pain, then you can ask about, do you have a different pain, a separate kind of pain? And that would be your breakthrough pain. Otherwise, you've just got a picture of red-hot pain. And the questions continue. So this is a chart looking at the onset of analgesia. So if it is idiopathic pain or non-volitional incident pain, you're sitting there thinking, well, I want the one that kicks in the most quickly, which is going to be a transmucosal fentanyl product. But these suckers are really expensive. Um, and then, of course, morphine is going to be the slowest onset because it's the most water-soluble. Um, so we have six, again, transmucosal. We ha I'm not going to go into great detail here. They're all very similar. They're all transmucosal. You've got Actique. You have Fentora, which Fentora is Actique, but off the stick with plop, plop, fizz, fizz added to it. It's an effervescent tablet. You've got Lazonda up the nose. You've got Actique. You've got um, subsis spray under the tongue. You've got an abstral tablet under the tongue. What am I missing here? Uh, there's six. Oh, on solace, a transmucosal film you put in the inside of the buccal cavity. Um, again, they all start at different doses. Some are 100 mics, some are 200. Um, some you can give a repeat dose when you finish, like for Actique. If the breakthrough pain is not really 15 minutes after completing the dose, so that's going to be at least a half an hour, you can use an additional one. But that's it. Then you have to wait another four hours before you can dose it again. They're all different. And the important thing is you cannot do mathematical calculations. You always have to start at the lowest strength. Here's the Fentora, which comes as 100. Here's the Unsolace film. 
And then again, the Abstral, the Subsys, and the Lasagna. They're all indicated for 18 years or older for breakthrough cancer pain. Um, and everybody has to be opioid tolerant per that same FDA definition. So this is important. Uh, what do I do again for, for using plain old oral morphine, oxycodone, hydromorphone? 10 to 15% of the total daily dose. So if someone is getting MS cotton 30Q12, that's 60 a day, 10% would be 6, 15% would be 9. Those are both goofy numbers. I would pick 5 or 10 or get an order for both. Q2 hours PRN. And I do like patients to rate their pain before they take a dose of the breakthrough and one hour after they take it. And you do want to see a good response, which is about a 30 to 50% reduction in the pain rating. So here we have Ms. Hendricks, a 54-year-old with end-stage esophageal cancer. She can't swallow very well. She's on transdermal fentanyl 75 uh, every three days, and you want to use oral morphine solution for breakthrough. What dose are you going to use? She's got a normal body habitus. What do you think? A lot. I love this kind of a question. So students have to put a lot together to answer this, don't they? What's the first thing they have to figure out? They have to figure out transdermal fentanyl. What is that equivalent to in morphine? So what is it equivalent to? About 150. And then you have to do your 10 to 15% rule. So 150 milligrams of uh, total daily dose of oral morphine is about what it's equivalent to. 10% would be 15. 15% would be 22 and a half. They're both, again, you could use the 15. But we're using the oral morphine solution, 20 to 1 or 100 to 5. Um, so I'm seeing something here. I'm seeing 20 milligrams. What do you think? Uh, so it works quite well. And I just want to point out, if you do deal with people who have a serious illness, people who are in hospice or close to the end of the road, an intensol is a beautiful, beautiful thing. An intensol is a high-concentrate oral solution. So morphine and oxycodone come 20 to 1. Methadone comes 10 to 1. We have Haldol. We have lorazepam. We have alprazolam. We have dexamethasone. Um, we've got prednisone. All come as a high-concentrate oral solution. And even if somebody is completely obtunded, I mean, they are really out to lunch, you you can prop their upper body up 30 degrees and put up to one ml in the buccal cavity. You can even put one ml over here and one ml over here. You can even break up a dose and say, I'm going to do one and one now, and I'm going to wait an hour and do the other one and other one ml. The only time an intensile doesn't work is if somebody has a lot of oral secretions, like an ALS patient. Sometimes the drug gets lost at sea. But in this opioid shortage, IV, let me tell you, this is a beautiful thing. Right, Meg? This is our resident, and she's going to do a study looking at people who come inpatient hospice without a controlled pain because we have some units that routinely use intensols, and then we have other units who are like IV all the way, baby, which is challenging. So the to-go point here is the transdermal fentanyl mics per hour times two is the total daily dose of oral morphine, and then you apply the 10 to 15% rule. So that's going to be one dose of your breakthrough. All right, how about opioid escalation strategy? So if you look at the literature, the guidelines say for moderate to severe pain, bump the dose by 50 to 100% regardless of the starting dose. So we're fine with low doses. So if I was taking Lasix 20 milligrams and it wasn't working, what would you bump me to? What are you going to send me, bump me up to? 40, she says. Oh, my God. Clearly, she's a big dog. She, she increased by 100%. Is that crazy pants? What do you think? Would it, wouldn't you think she was a little goofy if she increased it to 22 how am I even going to do that? Am I just going to take a 20 and lick the side of another 20? I mean, <laughs> you just can't do it. So 40 would make sense, wouldn't it? And then for mild to moderate pain, maybe 25 to 50%. So I had to put in here, use common sense. So if somebody's on MS Cotton 200Q12 
and they're having to paint 10 under 10. Are you really going to go to 400 Q12? Nobody here is going to do that. You're going to be like, mm -mm, baby, I'm not going to do that. So I do, I mean, certainly the CDC says you really shouldn't go over 50. You really, really shouldn't go over 90. Years ago, the American Pain Society put out a position paper saying you really got to think twice when somebody hits 200 milligrams a day of oral morphine. And I think my personal line in the sand is when somebody does get close to that 90, 100 milligrams of oral morphine, I'm not saying you can't go over it. I'm just saying you need to take a step back and take another look or phone a friend or do a street shout out and say, could you just look at this to see if I've forgotten anything? Do you think a co-analgesic would help? Something like that. If a drug company, you know, all these drug companies we have here, if they came to me and said, we will make any combination drug you want in the world, which I hate combination drugs, here's what I would want. Are you ready? Dexamethawana S. What do you think? <laughs> For terminally ill people, decadron, methadone, a little cannabis, and senna. That's all we need. I got your drug right here, baby. That's all we need. So a short-acting immediate-release opiate like morphine oxycodone, you can dose escalate that every two hours. A standard drug like MS-Contin, OxyContin, really you could do every 24 hours. I probably wait a little longer. Obviously, this does not include transdermal fentanyl or methadone. Transdermal fentanyl, you can increase after three days, and then it's every six days. Methadone, no sooner than every five days because it's 24 hours to uh, half-life. All right, case nine. We have a 54-year-old secretary with severe osteoarthritis on OxyContin, 20Q12 with the Percocet, 7.5-325 for breakthrough. She tells you using three Percocet a day keeps her comfortable. Do you want to make a change, or should we just rock on? Who votes leave it be? It ain't broke, don't fix it. Who says we're good? Who would like to cha make a change? And the rest of you are, what, lapsed in unconsciousness? I mean, what's the deal here? She's doing fine. You don't want to change it? Okay, so you want her taking five doses a day. She's, she's okay with it. Well, you know, she's getting 40 from the OxyContin and 22 and a half from the Percocet, and she's doing it like religion, so it's 62.5 a day. If I felt in my heart that she got it, and she understood that if I increase it to OxyContin 30Q12, that should replace her total daily dose, and she should be able to get the same pain control with two, do two doses instead of five medication doses a day. But I will concede, if somebody is emotionally attached to their breakthrough, and you know what I mean by that, you could increase it to a million Q12, and they're still going to want those three doses of Percocet. Am I right? So I think you have to use your clinical judgment there. So we have five minutes left. Does anyone have any questions for me? Yes. What do you have to do to get one of these cards? You have to buy me presents. No, just I, I have a few in my purse, and I brought a bunch for uh, outside when I'm, we're done here. Yes. I love methadone. It's on my awesome little card. There's like a million ways to convert to methadone. Here's what I do. I add up the total daily dose of their opioid. Um, my conversion is I consider, well, first, I consider anybody like the American Pain Society does who's opioid naive or taken even up to 60 milligrams of oral morphine equivalent per day, I consider them opioid naive, and I start anywhere from 2 milligrams to 7.5 milligrams a day, period. Then if they're on greater than 60 but less than 200 and they're under 65 years old, I do a 10 to 1 conversion. If they're over 65 years old or on greater than 200 milligrams of oral morphine equivalent, I do a 20 to 1 conversion. And since I mostly deal in hospice and palliative care, if somebody's between 63 and 68, I'm always asking the nurse, are they a young 63 or are they an old 63? And nurses are awesome at that. They give them the hairy eyeball and they know exactly what I mean. Like they're scanning their innards and then they tell me. And then I, I roll with that. Yeah. Use both what? 
Oh, load it. No, no. It's kind of like loading Warfarin. It doesn't make a lot of sense. No. I'd rather you load the Warfarin, I think. Let's just, you know. It won't work, but still, it's more fun. Yes. Yeah, I go to Q48. 20% of people really can't last 72 hours on transdermal fentanyl. I never go once a day, and I never, you know, and I, I, I don't use that 12 mic patch either, so but use common sense. Yeah. So, on your last tip, do you prefer chronic pain management to have long acting medication rather than the short acting? The question was for chronic pain patients, would you rather use long acting or short acting? Uh, even though there's no data, really, to substantiate it, I would prefer long acting. The, the, the patients that worry me are the ones who say, I don't want to, see, people grieve the loss of the original formulation of OxyContin because 39% of the drug was in the outer coating, so you got that woohoo party feeling within 45 minutes. And people who tell me, I don't like the OxyContin so much because I can't feel it. Dude, this is not a party. This is not for your entertainment value here. I'm trying to control your pain, not you, make you feel goofy. So I would rather use long-acting and get a steady-state serum concentration as possible. But, you know, and it depends on your patient. If you, I'm like, I've taken care of people where they're rock-solid stable, but I will give them the breakthrough just in case. Like the one guy who used to, like, shovel snow off the roof despite having horrible pain. I was like, stop it. And then one day he decided to rouse the raccoons from under the porch. It was like, what were you thinking? <laughs> what were you thinking with that? Leave, the raccoons weren't bothering you. Leave them be. Anybody else? Real loud. Any good data for butrans? Yeah, I think butrans is fine. I think it's a very weak opioid relative to what we use with oral. And I think a lot of practitioners struggle with the guidance in switching to butrans. They, you have to, you, if it's over 80 milligrams of oral morphine equivalent, you can't even use butrans. And they want you to titrate down to the 30 before you switch to the butrans. It's just important to remember that you still can use any opioid for breakthrough pain with that too. Yes. Yeah, that's a problem. The question was going from Q7 to Q48 with transformal fentanyl. Insurance doesn't always cover it. You have to call them, and you have to talk to, usually it's pharmacists who are working with the PBM or whatever, and explain to them. So you know what? You tell them, look, I could either use this generic transdermal fentanyl, Q48 hours, or I'm going to go to an expensive abuse to turn formulation. Your call, dude. What do you want to do? And then you'll get your authorization for a year. <laughs> yep. you got to play hardball with them. Yes, sir. Right? Doing great, no problem, except that she was saying that by the third day she was already noticing that it was going down. Right. I get this phone call from the pharmacist saying we ran out of the 50s, can we, uh, can we give her 225? Right. Okay. The question was, had a patient on transfer fentanyl 50. The pharmacy called and said we ran out of 50s. Can we use 225s? 
Yes, you can. But he said his first thing was do is to go to another pharmacy, and I support that too. Just find a pharmacy that's got it. And I always tell patients um, to give the pharmacy the heads up, saying I'm coming in in three or four days to get my new prescription filled for whatever drug it is. Can you make sure you've got it in stock? Because sometimes they don't. Sometimes they can't get it, and they have to go to a different pharmacy. Would I stagger it, like 25 today, 25 tomorrow? No, because they will screw it up. I don't stagger it, no. Well, I show 1030. I'm going to be outside if you have a follow-up question. Thank you so much for your participation.